Disc Aviation Podcast. Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. You've stumbled into episode four. I'm your host, Nick Pascarella, and not to be confused with our usual host, my buddy Nick Moore, who does a wonderful job moderating. If you hear me refer to him as Gravity, it's because he's Gravity Images on Instagram. I am Nick's Glass Eye on Instagram, but the guys call me Scotch to keep the two Nicks separate. I'm Greek and Italian, though, so don't get it twisted. It's not what's in my veins, it's what's in my glass, which you could probably hear right now if I drank it on the rocks, but I don't. Anyway, Gravity has passed me the reins this week, and I'm here with some of my dudes, Ryan Kelly out of Allentown, Pennsylvania, or as we know him, Rye Guy of Rye Guy Aviation. Welcome, my dude. How are you? Thanks, dude. Doing good. Fantastic, glad to hear it. And I have Full Discs Fearless Leader, James Woodard, out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a.k.a. Black Knight Aviation on Instagram. How you doing, dude? Doing good. I'm not sure about the leader part, but cool. <laughs> <laughs> Without you, we have nothing, my man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But we have a special guest tonight. We're honored to be in the presence of our good friend, the leader of 3G Aviation Media, 20 years at WSO backseater in F-18s in the Marine Corps, an all-around good dude and kind soul. I want to introduce you guys, introduce you guys, excuse me, and welcome Doug Glover. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for your service, man. How are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Did I get all that right? Uh, more or less. You know, I'll, I'll embellish it later, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, how did you get into aviation in the first place? You grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, right? Well, I grew up kind of all over the South. So I, I lived in Mobile, Alabama for a while, up in Middle Tennessee, outside of Nashville, the Murfreesboro, Tullahoma area, and then down in Huntsville. So uh, I'd grown up around military aviation and general aviation in a couple different ways. But if I had to pick one kind of moment or, or one uh, thing that, that hooked me, I, I always blamed my dad for taking me to the air show in Mobile, Alabama, and actually paying to have me ride in a helicopter. So like you see, everybody goes and does all the warbird <laughs> rides and all those things. Well, he put me in a helicopter and that got me hooked. Uh, it wasn't necessarily seeing all the fancy jets. It wasn't, you know, seeing cool warbirds up close. It was getting airborne. Uh, and from then on, I knew I was going to be in aviation. Didn't know what I was going to do. Thought I was going to be a pilot for a while. Thought there's absolutely no way I'll ever ride in the back seat because only an idiot would do that. And then, <laughs> you know, what do you know? Years later, I end up in the back seat of an F-18 as a weapon systems officer. So it's one of those things. How is that path uh, as you as you grew up and you bounced around a little bit? Like uh, once you kind of made the decision to head into the Marines, um, what led you that direction? Well, so my dad had been a Marine and he got out after eight years as a communications officer and, you know, went on with his life, did a lot of other different things, you know, sold computers for a while, did some government contracting for a while, you know, a lot of different things. But I was always impressed with you know, just how much the Marine Corps had molded him as a as a man, as an individual, and, and how even though he only spent a, a short time there, he really identified with Marines. And whenever he and other Marines would meet, they'd, you know, shake hands and, hey, where were you? What what did you do? And there was, there was always a bond there. So I knew I was going to do it. But to be honest, I thought, I'll be like my dad. I'll go in for a few years. I'll, I'll you know, serve my country, do something cool, uh, then go on for the rest of my life. Um, but after I went off to college, went for one year of fun and lighting my hair on fire at Florida State University. <laughs> and then thankfully, uh, before I had totally tubed my education, I got a nomination to go to the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, so I went there and I knew I was going to graduate and, and be a Marine officer. I knew that's what I wanted to do going in from day one. Um, but 
I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do in the Marine Corps. Because to be quite frank, that there's a lot of really cool things you can do in the Marine Corps. And so whether it was be an officer in tanks, be an officer in the artillery, I knew I had zero desire to be in the infantry. <laughs> that, that was one they, they cured us up early. You spend uh, six months at officer's basic and you go, yep, I'm pretty sure I don't want to be an infantry officer. Uh, but but I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then I had turned down a chance to have a guaranteed aviation slot because once again, like I said earlier, I thought, who wants to sit in the back? I, I don't have uh, the vision to be a pilot. I, if I can't be a pilot, I don't want to have anything to do with aviation. But shortly before I graduated from officer's basic, a number of slots came open for more backseaters. Uh, and, you know, they came down to me, the our officer instructors, and said, hey, do you want one of these slots? And I'm like, I don't know. And then it kind of hit me. I'm like, hey, dummy, if you turn it down a second time, you're probably an idiot. So, <laughs> so from, from that day, I said, all right, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll raise my right hand and go to the aviation side and uh, haven't, haven't regretted it, haven't looked back and, and you know, thought of anything other than that was just a great decision. That's awesome. Um, right Guy and James, jump in if you got any, uh, got any extra questions. Um, uh, I, my next my next idea was like, where did that take you around the world? Like once you got into the Marines, um, I, my secondary question was where you want a carrier. And I wanted to hear about the cat shot <laughs> so, and trap. So I can, I can disappoint you with the second one first. I've only had one cat shot, never had a trap. And that's because the Marine two seaters don't traditionally go to the boat. So our two seat F 18 D's, uh, we don't, take them to the carrier unless we're going to take it in a training role. They don't deploy on the carrier. Uh, so, you know, as a Marine Wizzo, you're a purely land-based uh, kind of kind of career. I have a whopping one cat shot in a C2 Greyhound going from uh, the USS John Stennis to Bahrain. So, But I flew, flew that one way and then came back via helicopter, so I didn't even get to uh, take a trap on the way back in. Um, taking plenty of field traps, plenty of uh, emergency arrestments and intentional uh, arrestments for when we do expeditionary field uh, landings as as marine aviators, uh, but thankfully not the boat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so it, the landings on on the field when you're practicing that is it the same? Like the would the duration be the same and the the approach the would everything be the same as it would be on a boat? So when you're going to fly for us, the field, the expeditionary arrestments, we fly a very similar pattern. And, and there's still an optical landing system or the ball, as you've heard it called, sitting mm -hmm. out there. And we use that to guide the aircraft down and to, to optically put yourself into the wires. But the landing gear there has, it's not as tight as it is on the boat. You're not stopping an aircraft in this 50, 75 feet. Uh, you're now, there's more play to the arresting gear, so it runs out a little bit. So oh, okay. it's not as violent of a uh, of an arrestment. But what I'll tell you is the difference is, rather than landing on a carrier that has a, a solid deck that, you know, is going to obviously give a little bit with the weight of the aircraft, but a fairly solid deck, when you land on an expeditionary airfield, this is all matting that is all clipped together, this AM2 matting we have this, uh, that's out there. And so you'll hit that and literally the entire runway will sag or it will kind of be a little bit of a washboard. So, so it is some of the squirreliest landings I've ever had in the F-18 is that moment when you're, you're landing on a short, like 4,000 foot runway that ends in the water. It ends in the, in the bay there in North Carolina. Yeah. And the runway feels a little squirrely. You think you've hit the, the gear and you think you can feel the deceleration a little bit, but the water's getting really close. <laughs> so so it's, it's definitely not the feeling that, that guys have on the carrier, but for guys that don't go to the carrier, it's 
it's really an eye opener when you're not landing on a 12,000 foot Air Force runway, you're landing on a 4,000 foot expeditionary airfield. What's the the word they have for that butt puckering? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> that and the F-18 is known for being, you know, bouncing around on landing. I'm sure you've all seen it at field carrier landing practice and things like that. It, mm-hmm. It'll it do its own dance down the runway. So uh, that can <laughs> that can get interesting, to say the least. Is the the idea just to kind of ride it out as you go? Absolutely. So you really have to be patient with the F-18 in a, a field, um, an expeditionary field arrestment. Um, because you just need to let it settle down. The, the gear is going to run out. They're going to then put tension on the gear and, and pull you back a little bit so you can drop the hook and get the uh, get the cable out of there. Um, but it's it's just a moment of trust that you hope that everything's gone right, and you hope the guy that clipped all the uh, all the runway pieces together did his job and didn't leave any gaps in there. <laughs> That's cool. Would you um, have you done similar things in a Rhino and a Legacy model, or is it just? The legacies. So the Marine Corps only operates the legacy, and okay. I have I have a whopping 1.0 flight hours uh, in a Rhino in a okay. uh, in a Lot 27F. That was it. Smelled like a new car. It was a, <laughs> a great test airplane from VX9. A, a good friend of mine came down and was uh, was getting a lot of the Marine Wizos to fly through it. But uh, that's that's the only experience I have. Is very brief, very brief time in the Rhino. Okay. Do you have any initial impressions from that? Well, it is so. Everyone's going to look at it and go, "All right, it's an F-18." For a Wizzo in the back, it's not. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have to understand the Navy's Rio community built the backseat of the Super Hornet uh, for the F model. The Wizzos that, I will say, inherited the backseat of the F-18D, uh, there was some input, but the the Wizzos I know that were there when they were really making the, the initial night attack Ds, we didn't get everything we wanted when, when the Wizzo community asked for things, like a heads-up display. Because mm-hmm. you look at like an SU-30, a two-seat SU-30, uh, like an MKM or an MKI, uh, there's two HUDs there. We don't, we don't have a HUD in the back of the, of the uh, Legacy. Um, so there's some compromises that were made there, and the, the hands-on throttle and stick, the HOTAS, works totally differently. Uh, between the F-18D and the F-18F. So I'll tell you that that one hour in the F-18F was thoroughly disorienting for me as I'm trying to remember what the triggers <laughs> did, what the other buttons did that were all different. Thankfully, the displays, at least those buttons worked the same. But uh, yeah, it, all the switchology was different because it was built to be like it had been in the F-14 rather than ours that had been uh. built totally differently. Ours ours was a lot more like the F-15 because the Strike Eagle uh, was there while we were building the the two-seat D models. And so our hand controllers, our, our Strike Eagle hand controllers, and the HOTAS was very similar. So you mainly flew the D model? Right. So I trained in Bs and Ds and then flew Ds for all my active duty flights. And the cool. B was was fun to fly, but it was like flying a 1970s airplane. It uh, it was not <laughs> as digital. Sure, you had digital displays, but there was a, a lot of analog stuff in that cockpit that uh, that people wouldn't expect. Would it keep you more busy than the other model per se? Uh, actually, less busy because the the ah. problem is the 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 moving map wasn't there for you. So the pilot had his moving map. You just had the the digital part of the display. You couldn't see the map underneath it. And your displays were tied to the pilots. So whatever I had on my left or right display, he had to do the same thing. He had to see the same display. So you couldn't do what we call a missionized cockpit where in a D model, I can run my own displays. I can do multiple different things. I have, I actually have two designation controllers so I can move 
like the the FLIR infrared camera while I'm running the radar at the same time and and do different things like that. Uh, you can't do that in a bee. Literally, it's two pilots sitting in a bee. You may be a wizzo <laughs> and, and have two anchors on your wings, but it's like having two pilots there because they were just designed as trainers. They, they were never designed to be combat-capable two-seat aircraft. Okay. And there's no stick in the back seat for the uh, Bravo or Delta, right? For the Bravo, there's a stick. You can okay. you can physically take it out, but there is there's a stick in the Bravo. Uh, in the Delta, there can be a stick, uh, but the fleet configured Ds, as we call them, the Wizzo configured Ds, they would take that stick out, and you just have this two side controllers, uh, hand controllers on the side. Now, when I was a young Wizzo, we used to always have one stick configured D in the squadron. Uh, and that was always great because it, it, it sucked for your training because you'd learn the wrong switchology. But the cool thing was the pilots would let you get some flight time. So <laughs> it was always good. You're like, oh, man, this sucks. I got to go fly the stick configured D. And you're like, yes, I get to fly again. <laughs> so so it was one of those uh, negative training for your Wizzo training, but a good chance to get to fly the airplane again. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, once again, it's a job I'll never complain about. You guys have heard me say it. I, I, I was... I had no idea how much fun the job could be because literally I thought it meant you were playing second fiddle to somebody else flying the airplane. But the Marine Corps and the way they build a crew and the way you, you live, you fight, you die as a crew, you debrief as a crew, you take your lumps as a crew, uh, it it was an amazing community to be a part of. Did um, did you have a, a small number of guys through your career or was it... Um, was it, were you like a lifer with one dude? Or? Yeah, I was going to ask that. I was curious on that so one. So no, the way we operate, and, and most Marine squadrons worked this way until you deploy to combat, uh, is that you would just fly with whoever you need to fly in the squadron for flight hours, or maybe they're matching up qualifications. So maybe one day you're flying with an experienced guy because you're a young guy like me, and then maybe they go, all right, we're going to let two of you young guys fly together, and hopefully you won't screw it up too bad. <laughs> uh, but you, it would vary because they want you to get different experiences. But then what will happen is either if you get into a very dedicated training phase, like you're working up to be an instructor, then you'll primarily fly with the same guy all the time. Uh, or as we would deploy to combat, we would try to match ourselves up with one or two or three pilots because you know, people always have to stand duty or they have to go you know, be the general's aide for a day or you know, one of those kind of things. So they'd give you a small cadre of pilots that you'd fly those operations with. So you would get really good or in the case of some of my friends, you would really want to choke your pilot or Wizzo, depending, <laughs> depending on who was the person not carrying the load. Uh, but but I was fortunate, and I always got paired up with great pilots. Um, and and so they were, they were guys that I, I like to say, uh, they were as dumb as me. You know, they, they, <laughs> things that I said seemed like really good ideas and great suggestions. So uh, it was it was a great matchup. All the guys I flew with in combat, I'm still good friends with to, to this day. Uh, and, and it's just it's kind of funny because in some cases it, it is dumb and dumber. You put two guys together, you fly for, you know, six months and all of a sudden things that really, really seem dumb to everyone else. You're like, yeah, that seems like a great idea. Let, let's go fly down to 500 feet right over that position where they were shooting man pads and AAA at the guys. That's a good idea. You know, so collective group thought, you know. Did you do inverted? Uh, no. So we were upright, but we were we were stupid. We, we That was one of the many days that my poor commanding officer got a phone call from from the colonel and the general about things that, that I and my pilot had done that seemed like good ideas at the time, but probably weren't. That's, uh, are, are you, are you cool with talking about your combat time? Where did you, absolutely, um, absolutely. Where did you put time in? 
Well, so my first combat experience was flying in Operation Allied Force. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, so <laughs> flying, flying over the former Yugoslavia, uh, flying into Kosovo, uh, and doing operations there towards kind of the tail end of that operation. So pretty much our squadron ended up in there in May. And as everyone remembers, uh, there was a mandate to get everyone out of country by July 4th uh, so that it would play well in the U.S. press. So we were in there very quickly, did about 30 days of, of combat operations uh, and then some policing actions and then flew home. Um, was was that generally what it was, policing actions, nothing too nuts for you guys? So for us, the first 30 days were very kinetic. So uh, we were going in there, we were doing deliberate strikes on airfields, we were hunting SAMs, we were hunting uh, Serbian artillery in Kosovo. Um, in that whole time frame, I only had two missions where I actually employed ordnance, but there were a lot of on-call uh, missions where we were loaded for bear, we were hanging out, letting the F-14s or the uh, other F-18 FACAs go in try to find the Serbian positions and then then drag us in if they could find them. So some some guys would have a lot of action on their uh, time on station. Uh, sometimes we showed up and we hung out, took gas from a couple tankers and went home with all of our bombs. So it, it, it varied widely in the 30 days. And then you got to the end and that was all just um, us being the big stick for NATO. Did you have... Um did you do wild weasel support or did you have it for these missions that you were doing? So both. So we trained and carried harm missiles okay. uh, for, for a lot of our operations. But, uh, and I'll say it now, thanks to a Navy squadron shooting a burrito in a microwave somewhere in Romania uh, <laughs> with a harm missile, F-18s were prohibited a, about a week into our operating time there from, from shooting harm missiles. And, <laughs> and in all fairness, uh, the, the F-16CJ much better harm platform than we were at the time. So okay. they, they could do much better work, not shoot the burrito in a microwave, you know. Right. All, 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 the, all the joking aside, they were the guys that we wanted. Um, we carried them for self-protect and for reactive work and then finally got out of that business. Um, but the CJs were great professionals, uh, even though there, there always was a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of, you know, dark, morbid humor uh, when those guys finally got shot at by the Sams because at least they're shooting at those guys and not shooting at you, you know. So, <laughs> so you'd hear the inflection in their voice go up as they were reporting that they, uh, they were getting spiked and it would go up another octave when they'd, you know, talk about a Sam launch and we're like, well, you are the wild weasels, you are the CJs. So, they, they did a great job for us. I mean, that's, that's one hell of a job. That those guys it is between those guys and and the prowlers the ea6s that supported us um they made my life very easy it, to be honest the the sam threat was not as concerning to me as the air-to-air -air threat because the sam threat at least we knew we were going to get indications we knew we were going to see a sam launch we knew everybody was going to talk about it on the radio i think what scared a lot of people because the serbs had demonstrated the capability to do it was to have a MiG running around at low altitude that was then going to show up in the middle of your strike package, and you're all trying to figure out how not to shoot your buddy uh, while not getting shot by a MiG. So that that was probably what concerned a lot of a lot of the aviators out there. Did you have any situations where you had that in your? So in your in, in none of our strike packages did we ever have a an a known air scramble. Uh, we had a couple times when we were uh, manning caps uh, north of the uh, north of Serbian border up in Hungary that we would get targeted, I'll say, into uh, a Serbian MiG, but we're never given the authority to enter Serbian airspace or shoot at them. Um, and then once famously, I, I always love telling this story, we, uh, we were targeted in to a low altitude contact. Um, and we put our radars down there and uh, 
heard an aircraft check-in on the radio and uh, we said, huh, okay, there's a, there's a C-130 taking off and I think that's Tuzla Airport that this guy is. So I think, I think we're taking a look at the same guys. Um, but my wingman decided to go ahead and actually lock up the contact instead of just looking at it with his radar. And the C-130 guys had taken off and turned their dispensers into auto. And that was the most impressive fireworks show at about 1,000 feet I've seen uh, <laughs> when it decided to put out all their expendables because it had a, a critical sa- uh, air-to-air lock on the airplane. So, uh, and and it, it, there was a moment where you're like, well, at least everything works. <laughs> Gave them a free operational test. But, uh, wow. but you, you kind of feel embarrassed when we went back debrief when we were like, that's why you don't take a hard lock on the guy. Just look at him with your radar, verify where he is, and verify he's one of ours. Wow. What kind of clearances do you need before you have to shoot? So it varies with the situation. Um, okay. There's there's a lot of different ways they can give you different weapons control levels, different declarations of the, the aircraft that you're looking at, whether it's totally unknown, whether it's known to be hostile, and, and different terminology between bogey, bandit, terminology like hostile, uh, things like that that all go into this making of a declaration. And, and a lot of times... Um, air crew focus on just the wording of hostile. They're like, hey, somebody tells me this guy's hostile, and I pull the trigger. There's a heck of a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, and you never realize it, at least in my case, until I was a weapons and tactics instructor, and all of the guys that are your fighter controllers, they spend a lot of time briefing this big matrix that you really don't care about. You're like, dude, I really don't care what goes in. Are you going to say hostile at the end of this? Are you going to tell me I can shoot him? Um, but there's there's a lot of work that goes on in the background so that they're giving you the right instructions right. and authorizing you to fire. Intense. It, it can be. You know, It's it, it, you look back at it, and, and I think, once again, it goes back to we all have a morbid sense of humor, and we, we all you know say that uh, there were dumb things we did. But at the end of the day, you're taking a bunch of 20- and 30-year-olds putting a lot of... Uh, a lot of fire and forget weapons, you know, AMRAMs, you can't exactly call back once you launch one. Um, and mm. you're giving them the best information they can and asking them to make really tough decisions out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, you can feel the, um, the bravado and the, uh, the excitement behind it. Earlier today I was reading, I don't know if you've read Dan Hampton's fighter pilot, or uh, Viper I've, pilot. I think, I Viper, I've, I've read part of it. The uh, that the prologue where he's uh, dropping through that dust storm to, <laughs> to get to the convoy. I was yeah. reading that and my heart was was going. Um, just getting you know hearing the the ground guys give the clearance for that that type of you know hostiles on the you know everything on the road is hostile. Yes, yeah. you know license to kill. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it's fascinating because you know people sometimes think of of just. Uh, air-to-ground missions is having that level of intensity, but you look at some of the shoot-downs that happened in, in Kosovo, and there were NATO pilots that were asking all the right questions. Nobody could declare that that MiG-29 really was a MiG-29, and in one case, the NATO pilot, she's like, I've had enough, and she pulled the trigger, and good honor, because it was at a range that was well inside where she needed to be shooting that MiG um, and shot it down. But it's it's one of those cases that sometimes it's just a it's the best decision you can make with not enough information. Well, it's like in football, they say it's bang, bang plays. Like your things are moving at such high speeds. You got to yeah. make really fast decisions. And, and it has to be fairly innate. That's the other frustrating thing that a lot of people don't understand is that the reason you fly so hard and you train so hard and the training is so realistic is because you have to have seen a lot of it before so that your mind right. can, can immediately look at it and go, oh, I know how to solve this problem because you truly are on brainstem power. I mean, I, it is not as... 
I would never say it is as frightening to you personally as ground combat or anything like that. But there's there's a moment when you see a radar coming, contact coming at you, and you see a smoke trail, and there's kind of this you know <laughs> lump in your throat, and you're like, is that because somebody's shooting a harm, or is that a you know, <laughs> is that an air missile being shot at me? What, you know, what is that smoke trail? And, and try to figure those things out pretty pretty fast. Man, something I've never had to worry about. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Drank a lot of beer, visited a lot of countries, wore pajamas well, to work every day, you know. <laughs> Got to act like a 12-year-old. You know, it's, it's every boy's dream. I mean, where, where's the uh, most fun place you've gone, or the most beautiful place you've been that the Marines uh, have taken you? That's, that's tough to say um, because you'll laugh, and I'll say one of the places that I find most beautiful and has the most potential to be beautiful is Afghanistan. That is mm. that is one place once you've been up in the mountains there and seen really how beautiful it can be. Um, that's a country that that I I just I'm always fascinated with. Uh, I will also say that Japan and Thailand are probably two of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, once you're once you're in the mountains in Thailand, back in the jungle, uh, it's it's just a level of of all the cool things you've ever wanted to see about Asia. Um, and I've never gotten to do coastal Thailand. I need to do that one of these times, but, um, but I'm kind of a sucker for Asia. So <laughs> that's, that's cool. I've never been over. Have either of you guys ever been over? No, Mm-mm, no, no. I know, uh, when combat aviator, that story we did with him, he has photos of, of Afghanistan above the mountains, above the clouds, Apaches, and it's sunrise. just dropped dead gorgeous. It's like, it, wow. Well, it is. And so to me, there were two places that just stick in my mind. And obviously the Hindu Kush is one. Because when you're up at 10 plus thousand feet in the mountains, and, and those mountains go on forever. It's not like Colorado where you're like, oh, look, I can see the plains from here. I mean, they just <laughs> go on forever and get, and get higher. That's kind of the, the sad thing when you're coughing up a lung and you're at 10,000 feet and you're like, and I feel like I'm in the foothills. Um, <laughs> yeah, Then it's, it's just beautiful. But uh, for me, flying through a lot of the valleys as we walk, worked our way up towards Bagram and you'd see the old terraced fields and a lot of the olive groves and everything that was kind of abandoned now after after so many years of war but it it reminded me of all the Chinese paintings you'd always see in the Chinese restaurants you know that all Mm. the beautifully terraced fields and everything and and you realize what a really beautiful country it could be unfortunately it's been war-torn for so long and just just so many different competing factions that these are are buildings and farms from like 1920 that you're looking at that haven't been you know occupied since then. Oh. Wow. Man, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's I, that's the thing. Is I say I got to see some really cool places, meet some really awesome people, um, get to fight some of them. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, but overall, it was, you know, the Marine Corps took me to a lot of really neat places. I, I never would have gone uh, on my own. Um, so, sorry, go ahead, James. I was going to say, so after the Marine Corps, where did your career go? So what did you as, do next? Well, as I was winding down my Marine Corps career, I'd, I'd done a lot of photography while I was in the Marines because, once again, you go to all these beautiful places, you kind of got to take photos after a while. And flying F-18s for so many years, I'd obviously spend a lot of time shooting uh, while I was flying the missions. Um, but I kind of felt like, I said, I, I know I need to get a real job of something to, uh, to pay the bills, but I really want to spend some more time doing photography. So I started spending more time in the warbird community that, quite frankly, I hadn't really done a whole lot with because I was doing military aviation things. Um, and so that, that kind of was, as, I, as my career wound down, I started doing more of the, the traditional aviation photography things. Um, and that was, that was fun, but at the same time, a little bit frustrating because all of a sudden you're the new guy. You know, it's not like uh, being a, a, 
an F-18 Wizzo and walking into any Marine squadron where odds are I know uh, if it's a helicopter squadron, I know some guys. If it's a jet squadron, I probably know a bunch of guys. Uh, being able to instantly make connections. Now I'm walking in talking to aircraft owners like, who are you? What did you used to do? Why are you here? So it's, uh, as you guys have found, <laughs> can be very frustrating. Well, I was I was curious, um, going back a little farther, how you got into photography and then uh, into your into your service career. You know, what was what was the first thing you shot? When did you combine the two? When did it make sense to do that? Well, so in high school, I had a little Minolta Maxim Seven or one of those uh, nice. cameras that was. It was great. It was fun. I fooled around with it. I was not a good photographer at all. Uh, didn't really have <laughs> have much instruction or or even passion for it. And then over time, just you know, kept taking photos and probably like you guys, I have plenty of helicopters with frozen rotor blades and uh, mm-hmm. warbirds <laughs> with frozen props um, that are also very small in the frame. Uh, but <laughs> but but I, I I shot a lot of different things. And so I, I kind of did a lot of documentary photography is the best way to say it. And the first time I combined it really with aviation was as I was finishing up my first deployment to Japan, um, digital cameras were really starting to to make it to the consumer market. And I picked up a little Fuji, I can't even remember what, what the name of it was, but it was a little square box with a lens, basically, <laughs> that, you, that you put one of their little memory cards in. And it was probably a half a megapixel camera or something like that. You know, thoroughly horrible. Uh, I think I had, a, <laughs> I had a one megapixel camera when I went to Kosovo. So you see any of those photos, they, they come out very low resolution. Um, but Thumbnail size. Yeah, exactly. They make great thumbnails. They're already there. Uh, <laughs> but I started dabbling with that. And so I, I spent some time learning more of the the science of light and all the things that you really are supposed to learn first as a photographer mm. rather than having the tool handed to you um and and i was fortunate because being in a d squadron and uh working with other two-seat marine squadrons there's always a couple photographers in every squadron so i got to kind of rub elbows with some other guys that had shot and had done some things for magazines and and learn how they um how they did their their work and to be quite honest um you know, after Allied Force, Alan Warren's over at Combat Aircraft kind of took me under his wing and, you know, said, hey, here's some things you ought to think about. Here's some things you ought to do and, and you know, really start working on your craft as a photographer and, more importantly, as a photojournalist. So learn to do the writing. That was one of the first things he told me. He's like, Doug, learn to do, learn to write um, because photos are great, but people buy articles. Interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um I, the some of your images are flowing through my head. You have some like nice blue waters and like F fives and F eighteens. You have like some favorite images from your time flying shooting. Uh, oh, I do. I think uh, probably one of my favorite, even though it, it may not be the the highest resolution or the or the um, you know the the best lighting. And the and I think I shot a JPEG at the time because my D seventy wouldn't shoot burst fast enough. Uh, but we were at Delamere Range in Australia, and we dropped a uh, my wingman dropped a, a string of four uh, Mark eighty threes with uh, what we call balutes, those big parachute high drag uh, cool. devices. And so they're coming off the aircraft, and they're in four different stages of opening up as they're uh, as they're underneath the aircraft. And that was a fun. That was a really cool shoot to do. I was glad the squadron trusted me to do it. 
I'm glad that my CO said absolutely go out there and shoot that for us. And more importantly, I'm glad I got the shot. (laughs) Even though it was in JPEG, something that I would probably make fun of somebody for doing now. But that was back in the days where our cameras just, they, if you, unless you had a really fancy pro camera, you didn't have high speed burst. Right. What's been your most challenging that you've done? (laughs) All of them. No, (laughs) I say that because, because every time I go, I walk into a shoot and go, I've got this one wired. Something else will happen. And, and I'll just even use the example of a shoot I did uh, at Oshkosh, where I rolled in thinking this was going to be a low-stress, easy shoot. My buddy had said, hey, come up, you know, shoot our uh, Marchetti S211s. We'll get another jet to be the photo platform. So all I do is pick up a ticket, the toothbrush, and my cameras, and I'm set. And as soon as I land, his my phone starts blowing up with his texts of, hey, the photo ship's down. Don't know what we're going to do you know, and, and all the changes to the plan. So (laughs) every single one of them is a drama in one way or the other. Uh, and, and I say that not because I'm some great photographer that can, you know, put Humpty Dumpty back together, but every time you think you've got an easy shoot, be careful because sure enough, something that you're not, you're not, uh, expecting is going to, is going to jump up and bite you. Hey, there's what we know how much work there is behind every shoot, uh, for our listeners, we did a session with you guys in Culpeper, and we had. <laughs> and I still feel a, bad about that. <laughs> kind of had a perfect storm of timing and maintenance issues, compounded by a late airshow practice, and what began oh. as a one-hour shoot with seven potential aircraft turned into five to ten minutes with like three total yep. aircrafts. But <laughs> yep. <laughs> what are some of the workarounds when things don't go as planned? For instance, you know, you're the you're the guy with the the radio. How you know if the radio goes out? What are your hand signals? Are you know? Well, absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the things that I really try to impress upon people. And it's it it leads into one of the questions that you guys had asked me offline about, you know, why why are your briefs so long? Um, It's because there's so many eventualities that I'd like to cover that that when something goes wrong, people don't go. What's Doug going to do? They go, oh, Doug talked about that. Or, hey, wait a minute, we lost sight. Hey, Doug talked about that. What I'm supposed to do is, and and that is a habit pattern from the Navy and Marine Corps, and that, that we in the Naval Service tend to brief a lot of things in a painful level of detail, but because we don't want someone, when you get to that decision point, to go, huh, I wonder what he wants me to do. Now, hopefully they remember from the brief or they look at their new board card and go, oh, yeah, this is the formation I need to be in or this is the waypoint I need to fly to if I can't find anybody. Um, and, and you want that to be um, a fairly quick reaction. You know it's not going to be instantaneous because you probably haven't done it a bunch of times. But I, I try to take that same that same tact um, in my photography that I'll cover a lot of these things so that the things I have to freelance are when it really gets off the rails like it did in Culpepper. <laughs> when, when not only have they gone to the wrong point and not only have you gone to the wrong point, and so now nobody's where they're supposed to be. And, you know, I'm running between the back of the airplane and the front of the airplane to talk to the pilots and then to look out the back to try to find the subject. Uh, yeah, you, you, you get one of those points where you just sit there and you just want to land. There, that's the only way I know how to describe it because there's a moment where you go, I just want this shoot to be completed successfully, and I want to land, and then I'm going to drink a very large beer. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to think about if I ever want to do this again. (laughs) Maybe I'll take up studio photography. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, that'd be too boring. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Well, you know, if we had landed early, we wouldn't have got those good, like, five minutes with Scott at the end. And he, you know, went on the side and did the side slip for us against the mountains, yeah. and that was yeah. that was a cool shot. He got up real close and went inverted for us, and you know, 
we got some cool things from that. And it, I feel like, you know, the lesson is just keep keep pounding and mm-hmm. you'll find Yeah, your... it was a great experience regardless yeah, of for sure. how the shots came out. Yeah, and that's the tough thing that I think I've learned probably more from failed shoots and from shots where I came back or shoots where I came back and looked at the shots. It was like, man, if only I'd set it up this way or if only I had briefed him to do mm-hmm. this maneuver or that maneuver, yeah. um, then then it, we get to come back, we get to tighten up our game. And that's kind of the attitude that I took from marine aviation and tried to bring into photography because it seemed that a lot of my peers were were kind of, and I'll say one shot, one kill kind of guys. They're like, well, you only get one shot at it. I'm like, yeah, but you have to get better. And if your skill level doesn't get better, if you're not consistently really debriefing yourself and looking hard at, was my brief good enough? Did I... Did I control the flight the right way while I was airborne? You know, did I really know my camera by the time I got out there? Because I've had guys go, yeah, I'm just going to buy a new camera before this air-to-air shoot. I look at them and go, are you an idiot? <laughs> are, you, are you trying to guarantee you're going to fail? You know? um, but, but things like that, that, that if you're not hard on yourself and say, all right, did I, did I learn from all these mistakes? And you're probably still going to make some of them the next time, but that number is going to get fewer and fewer and fewer. And so you're going to really tighten down on the things you can control. And I, and I really have to emphasize that you, 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 you stamp out all the mistakes that you can because there's so many things you can't control, like the weather or emergencies, like Clements. Yeah, you know, I, I can't control his aircraft hiccuping upside down. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's, yeah. there's, there's things like that that, uh, that you just have to roll with. Yeah, and he rolled with that and managed to get it back to the airport and land in one yeah, piece. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that was that is the one of the few times where I have really, really not enjoyed not being in an F eighteen with a great view of the world, being stuck in the <laughs> back of a cargo airplane where I can't see where this guy's gone, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm hoping I'm not looking out to look for a smoking hole. Uh, right. And I'm like, okay, he's not on the radio. He's not talking to me. He's not talking to anybody. That's probably good because it means he's solving his problem. But I really wish I could find him visually and see that I can see him tracking to the airport. So, Yeah, I, I'm kind of glad I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, ignorance is bliss sometimes. <laughs> yeah, man, it really is. <laughs> um, man, I'm kind of bouncing around my uh, my notes here. I, I really wanted to ask this question Um I'm particularly curious about your time working as uh, FAC, or for our, our listeners who don't know what that is, it's a forward air controller, um, and some people do that on the ground, and some people do that in the air. Uh, I've read a number of books recently on the FACs, or FACs, right? They call right. them FACs? Yep, we call them FACs. Um, working in Vietnam, uh, including uh, the, the MISTI flight of F-100s, which right. would work at high speed, low level. Uh, and then the Prairie Fire OV-10 Broncos, which worked uh, below treetop level most of the time. Um, and the, uh, what is it, Da Nang, da Nang Diary? Right, that's, that's a great book. Phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal book. He vividly details the danger of doing such a job, flying at low level with a whole bunch of small arms shooting at you. Um but what, what platform did you work out of? It was probably the F-18, right? Right. So I, I was a FAC-A, as we call it, forward air controller airborne uh, in the F-18, and then I was a ground FAC uh, in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq uh, oh, with, okay. with a ground unit. So I, I did both. How, how long did you do those particular jobs? So I did my ground FAC tour was 13 months long, so 13 months of no flying, which uh, for most aviators breaks their heart. But I'll be honest, that was probably the best 13 months of my career it was amazing well so 
not every aviator goes to a battalion in the Marine Corps that values aviators. I was extremely blessed that I went to a unit that wanted to know about aviation. They wanted the three aviators that were assigned to that battalion to be the duty experts, and they trusted us to have the right answer, um, but they also held us to a very high standard of execution. So um, it was me, a good buddy of mine who was a Cobra pilot, another friend of mine that was a a Prowler guy, three great good friends on the team um, got to work with a bunch of infantry officers and infantry Marines who really, in a lot of cases, entrusted us with making decisions that that they didn't know the technical pieces behind. Um, so it wasn't just airstrike. So a lot of a lot of people concentrate when they think of ground forward air controllers, they think of, um, you know, airstrikes out of, you know, any one of the Vietnam movies or anything they've seen, you know, we were soldiers once and young, they, they, they think of things like that. Um, they forget that a lot of what the forward air controllers do is safely getting people from point A to point B on helicopters and coordinating mm. those kind of missions and getting the helicopters in and out of the landing zone safely. Um, and that was always one of the kind of the, the running jokes with the helicopter pilots that, that the Marine pilots that supported me was that they always knew when I was on the radio because I, I ran it like it was real airspace, like it was a tower. They're like, oh, great. we got to check in with him again. Otherwise, he's going to yell at you. And, and more than once, you know, I, I ran onto the back of a helicopter, ran up to the front, uh, past the uh, the crew chief uh, on board, you know, would slap my buddy on the shoulder and go, hey, man, thanks for picking me up, but next time, check in with me. Because, <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't think anything about it. They're like, hey, I'm going to go land in the landing zone. Well, you got a hundred some odd grunts running around with weapons and people are shooting and, and you have to, coordinate these things before the helicopters end up in the middle of it you know that makes sense yeah it's one of the things thanks for picking me up didn't want to spend another night out in the desert but next time talk to me (laughs) (laughs) um did you have a call sign is it uh disrespectful to ask that (laughs) it's it's not disrespectful so okay i'm drinking uh i'm drinking 1800 uh and lime so i have an alcoholic drink in front of me Fantastic. uh you have an alcoholic drink in front of you right knob creek yeah. oh excellent okay so so then we're okay i mean even though if anyone else is drinking water that's all right you're totally breaking protocol uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you can ask me about my call sign that'd so, be me yeah that's all right <laughs> yeah i guess you too. have an excuse <laughs> um but you know the funny thing is in in the especially in the marine corps and also in the Navy, we tend to have funny call signs. The Air Force has cool-sounding call signs. Most of them have a funny meaning behind them uh, or an embarrassing story. Um, but ours tend to just sound stupid a lot of times. <laughs> so so I will I will say that, you know, with the last name of Glover, uh, for a while there, my call sign was Danny. That's a thoroughly unimaginative one. Um, <laughs> that, that took about two brain cells, which probably makes it good sense for us marine aviators. Um <laughs> Then the next time it was play on my last name, so my call sign was Rubber, as in Rubber Glover. So, <laughs> well, then after a while, I managed to distinguish myself enough that my call sign then became Eddie, but it was spelled O E D I. And the question is, of course, which of you is the educated people that can figure out why it's spelled O E D I? It's short for something. None of you were experts in Greek mythology. I should be. It's but short I'm not. for Oedipus. Yes, the guy yeah. that killed his father and married right. his mother. Because yes. uh, my girlfriend at the time was a few years older than me, and we'll use that. And she's now my wife, so theoretically, uh, she I can't get a call sign from that anymore. But the call sign was already there, and so it stuck. I was Eddie, O-E-D-I. Well, it's fitting that 
both the name and the girl stuck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. She still stuck around with me. She didn't kick me to the curb. Well, sounds like she's a wonderful woman. She absolutely is. She's a retired Marine as well, and so I'm amazed she's put up with my crap, knowing full well what she was getting into. So, well, that's that's bold. <laughs> <laughs> she also shoots better than I do sometimes, so that's putting, putting my own life at risk here. Well, if you're shooting sideways, we all got problems. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I was going to ask if uh, I, you've uh, you mentioned that you shot from uh, helicopters, jets, C one thirties. Do you have a pl- uh, favorite platform? Um, I did some shooting on a helicopter trying to shoot props, uh, an albatross, and it was very, very challenging because the, the helicopters, you know. Um, we were in a twin stars, very, very, you know, up and down. Right. And I had to hold the camera away from my face and like balance my arms almost like a, a gimbal or something. Yep. Well, and every helicopter flies a little bit differently. So it's, it's funny to go from flying like a twin star and then comparing it to a couple different military helicopters, uh, either a Black Hawk or a, uh, a UH-1 Yankee to fly out of. Um, I'll be honest, if you, if you say... I need a dynamic, you know, kind of not fast jet platform. I'd say the UH-1 Yankee is my favorite airplane to shoot out of. I love shooting out of C-130s. They're cool. Um, And I think it's probably because the the subject matter that you get to shoot when you shoot other helicopters out of the UH-1 Yankee. Uh, And I think the last piece of it is because, and this is going to sound arrogant, so I apologize, but I'm going to say this. It, It allows me to separate the, the photographer's, from the photographer athletes, because if you do a two and a half hour photo shoot in a Yankee in the Yuma, Arizona desert and you survive <laughs> and they don't have to pour you out of the helicopter, um, it, it, all of a sudden aviation photography goes from being this very static kind of thing to I, I didn't realize that one, I could sweat that much in a helicopter and two, that I could burn that many calories just running back and forth in that, you know, was it four foot section, five foot section across the hole there, um, <laughs> shooting other helicopters as they're maneuvering, shooting and doing all these things. I, I was absolutely worn out. I, I went back uh, one of my pilots from uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom was the CEO of the squadron, and I went back late on the floor in his office, and I was like, "Just shoot me now! Your, your helicopter guys have broken me." Um, but it was it, it was a, a cool platform to shoot out because I could do so much, even though it was extremely demanding. And, and if if I had to think about a shoot that I was probably the the most I don't want to say frustrated with, but the one that was the most work, that one was both physically and mentally demanding, trying to stay sharp. Keep shooting even when you're like, I really need to drink some more water. I really need to eat a power bar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're, you're two hours into the two and a half hour flight. Man, that's a long shoot. It, it was. So it was, there was a point coming back where I knew there were still images I needed to get because we hadn't flown over certain terrain. We hadn't flown over certain locations. But I all I could think about was I'm like, okay, I can see that checkpoint that we just flew back. That means there's only about another twenty miles to go. Okay, there's another hey, there's pilot's knob. It's only about ten miles to go to the airfield. So it was well, hitting each one of those going, I know I'm gonna make it, I know I'm gonna make it, I'm not gonna pass out standing up in the uh, <laughs> you know, in the in the cross section of this helicopter there. Because you're because little... you're crouched over, you know, you you're crouched over with a gunner's belt on, your cameras and all this stuff, and you're trying to to constantly move the other aircraft around to hit the lighting you want or everything else. And then there's a point where it's just not fun. It's just, it is making the sausage at that point. You're like, I've got to get the photos that I was sent out here to get. Uh, and, uh, and it's a lot of work. 
Hey Doug, has there been um has there been any you know shoots that you've felt like you kind of worked your hump to get uh, that have been you know more rewarding or ones that you just really wanted to get and it took a lot of effort to um, you know get things in motion, get things put in place in order to do it. So it probably is no surprise that I say the shoot with the Blue Angels and the F twenty two Raptor. That that is one of those that you complete a shoot like that, and Tony and I kind of looked at each other. We're like, "Did that just happen? Did, did we just finish that shoot? Nobody's yelled at us. The sky hasn't fallen. The men in black suits haven't showed up and put cuffs on us. Okay, we we did everything right. We didn't break any laws, and we made this all work out. Um, that that was one of those that was a just a lot of behind the scenes discussions, and it was it wasn't a lot of work to prepare. But for me personally, it was a huge amount of stress. Um, and, and that's mostly self-imposed uh, because when you work with demo teams, especially as a former military aviator, you sit there and you say, wow, you know, these guys are good. I don't want to look like an absolute blubbering idiot in front of them when I try to give them the brief. Uh, so there was a, a huge level of stress that I put on myself. And then just the, the fact that there was a lot of turbulence, a lot of low-level um, stuff to fight that day. Uh, it, when you, when we got back, we looked at the cameras and like, wow, the photos are sharp and people are in the right place and smoke is on. <laughs> it, you, you really walk away from me like, okay, that I earned that shoot. That one didn't fall into my lap. <laughs> yeah. It was some amazing images from that one for sure. I, I appreciate it. Cause it's one of those that I, um, there, there's things you see and you hope your photos turn out the way you remember the event. Um, because I will never for the rest of my life, forget the ramp coming down. And, and I'm already on the radio. I'm already listening to the comms. And I knew Loco was joined on us. But when the ramp came down and I'm staring at an F-22, filling the entire ramp behind me on that Casa. <laughs> That's just one of those moments you just sit there and you go, okay, I guess it's time to start shooting. Wow. <laughs> yeah, go, go, And, and go. the problem is people started wanting to shoot. I'm like, no, get onto the ramp. Go move and sit down here so you can get a better shot. But yeah, everybody kind of has buck fever and sees an airplane behind the behind the cargo aircraft and they start wanting to shoot. Wow. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I would do if I was staring an F-22 in the face from the back of a... Well, you know what you're going to do is you're going you're to watch it. It's, it's what I tell so many people. I think I said it to you guys as well was that there's a moment in an air-to-air shoot where you need to stop shooting and you need mm-hmm. to just take a look yeah. at what's going on and, and appreciate how cool it is and sometimes how historical it is, you know, because there's, there's times that you're getting a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fly with some of these aircraft uh, as uh, Angela Sells, you know, got with some of her work where she's getting to do these things to document the last flights of, a, of an aircraft. Um, it's, it's pretty neat that you need to just stop, stop being the photographer, appreciate how cool you're seeing these things and then go back to doing your job, <laughs> get the photos that everybody else needs. Um, but yeah. Can, can you go ahead and tell us more about 3G, how it came to, how you I was decided that thing. you wanted to do 3G aviation media to start educating others on it? And how did Tony come into that? So the funny part of this all, and, and this is, it's an interesting t- story to try to tell and to try to tell it nicely, um, is <laughs> that the original three of us from 3G, Tony and Matt and I, we all met at an aviation photography workshop. And we all were fairly talented shooters, I'll say. We weren't terrible. We knew which way to point the camera. Uh, you know, and like I walked in with a, you know, big portfolio of military aviation 
Tony walked in with a huge portfolio of dive uh, photography that he'd done. Um, Matt walked in with a bun bunch of portraiture photography. So, so we all had demonstrated our ability to at least point the camera and correctly capture an image in something something different than what we were doing. Um, but in most of our cases, we were trying to explore warbird aviation and uh, really wanted to to not just fill our portfolio, but get taught some of the techniques and some of the parts of the trade. Um, and unfortunately, we walked away from a fairly expensive workshop at the end of it after having shot and had a great time flying and, and doing some things. And, and we all three looked at each other and we said, what did we learn? You know, what, what, what did we get other than the experience of shooting that made us any better? And I'm like, I learned like one technique. And Tony's like, I didn't learn anything. And Matt's like, yep, nope, didn't learn anything either. Um, and so we then looked at each other and said, all right, get it. We're not the burning bush for warbird photography, but we knew that we understood the basics of individual elements. And so that's where we kind of drug the, the three parts of that together and said, all right, we're going to start teaching workshops that are focused on the photographer, not for filling their portfolio, but for making them a better photographer. Um, and that was really the, the impetus to start all that. Um, and, you know, personalities and friendships and business being what they are, Matt eventually said, hey, this is not really what I want to do. Went off and continued his work uh, down in Orlando and is a, is a great photographer down there. And then Tony and I kind of took the helm of 3G and steered it the way it's been in the last few years, uh, adding air-to-air -air, uh, workshops out there and trying to increase the air-to-air -air standardization and, and uh, experience level of the photographers out there. I imagine you get quite a bit out of the um, the teaching and mentoring of I do. photography students. I enjoy it. I, it. It's it's tough once you've been an instructor uh, to to see an opportunity to teach and teaching doesn't go on. So I think that was the mm. difficult thing because Tony had been a dive instructor while he was doing a lot of his dive photography. I of course had been a, a weapons and tactics instructor in the Marine Corps, teaching both ground facts and teaching F eighteen crews uh, the trades and. And after a while, we kind of said, we, we know that people don't know all the answers, because we certainly don't know all the answers either. Um, but in this exploring it together and figuring out aviation photography together, we can, we can all get better. Um, and we learn from, from a lot of the photographers at our workshops. It's always funny. People kind of assume that we're going to show up and tell them everything. We go, no, there's some of the stuff we're all going to figure out sitting behind the camera. You know, and we're going to say, let's try that. Ooh, that didn't work. Okay, let's try this. Oh, that did work. Or, or someone down the line is going to go, hey, man, I set it to one two fiftieth. All right, let's try that. <laughs> you know, and so, and so we're, we, we work through a lot of these things and kind of learn together, which, you know, fortunately, you guys are, are some of the few photographers I see doing that out there. Probably a lot of photographers have told you, hey, we're kind of lone wolves. I don't, I don't like to associate with other photographers. That's, that is so true in aviation photography, and it's refreshing to see groups like you all say, hey, you know what? We're actually going to get together, and we're going to help each other out, and we're going to share techniques. It's a crazy idea, and I'm not going to tell people to uh, run my ISO all the way up. <laughs> Maxim <laughs> maximize the ISO, as I heard the story. So I had to chuckle at that one. So. Yeah, I gotta I gotta remember that technique. So the next time <laughs> someone asks me, you're, you're gonna sell those images, and give them away? Oh, you give them away, maximize the ISO. There yeah, you not go. so much. I'm not gonna do that to somebody. Lesson learned. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> all right. I mean, I, I I hear that and I just I, my mouth hangs open and I blink a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, ridiculous. Well, um, well and that's that's the the problem 
so I'm gonna get on my soapbox for a second. Kind Do of it. The, the problem right now in aviation photography is there are so many people that are afraid of sharing techniques or experience or things like that because there's this myth that there's a pot of gold somewhere out there. Can any of us point to the pot of gold that we've got from aviation photography? I certainly don't have it. I'm running workshops people pay to attend. <laughs> and there's no pot of gold there. So so people keep talking about this this mythical, I'm, I'm going to lose money if I teach you this, the, the tricks of the trade. No, you're not, because there's no money to be made anyway. There's, there's very limited editorial income. There's very limited fine art income. There's just not um, this, this livelihood out there that people are giving up. And even if there was... Uh, as I, I made a comment to my good friend Glenn, I'm like, we have to look at this like being plumbers. If I don't teach the next generation how to handle the trade, we're all going to be up to our eyeballs and shit. You know, <laughs> this is not going to work out well for any of us. So, so we can't Perfect. have this this parochial view of photography. Um, we really need, to, you know, there there are always going to be business dealings, and there's there's always photographers that ask me and say, hey, how much did you know, CAF Dixie Wing charge you to, to bring up the Corsair or whatever. I'm like, that's a business deal between 3G and CAF. You want to hire their airplane, you call them. Uh, but, but when it comes to just the pure photography piece of it, we got to be able to share that. And we got to be able to mentor, to be honest. We, we really have to be able to, to take people and say, hey, don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I appreciate that. I know the other guys feel the same way. It's, it's really nice and refreshing to, you know, collectively everyone if we want to learn what's the big deal about learning like if you're not going to tell me you go on youtube and learn the same thing like it's you know like what what's the big deal like mark finger was instrumental like a a year or so ago when i was talking with him about certain techniques just you know it, it was it's really nice to have someone who's just open about oh yeah that's just this thing and that thing just do these things and right. then you you got it well and i think any photographer that has shot for a while that is honest about their capabilities is going to say sure 70% of it is mastering the technique but there's still a big chunk of it whether it's 30 whether it's 50% you know we can all argue about that till the cows come home but that is pure photographer input how i frame the shot how i edit the shot i mean Tony and I, a lot of times, have shot right next to each other, and you look at the photos, and you go, those <laughs> couldn't be two more different photo shoots because we, we chose different things to, to hone in on or to focus on. Uh, so, you know, to me, it's one of those things where you want to share your skills and you want to share your techniques knowing that the output from the other photographer is probably not going to be the same. And if it is the same, then either you're not growing or they grew really fast and they just learned how to copy you. <laughs> so it's one or the other, you know. There's there's every now and then we'll we'll hit the same image, but I feel the same way with these guys. Like when we're at a show and we're standing beside each other, and we come out with completely different images. Oh yeah. Well, what I'll what I'll caution you about because Tony and I ran into this is you spend enough time around the same photographers, you sometimes subconsciously start to edit like them, and it was so funny because I was two years into teaching with Tony that I found my editing style starting to shift towards his. <laughs> and it was simply because he'd do things like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, wait, I've never thought of doing that. And I would add it into my bag of tricks. But the problem was my bag of tricks started becoming his bag of tricks. <laughs> and, and so he and I were laughing because one day I started teaching an editing class. And I'm like, wait, why am I doing all these things? Because this is what you're going to talk about. Let me go back to what I would have taught a year prior. Um, and you just have to 
you know, guard against that yourself. Because we, we all become creatures of habit. We find a technique that works for us. We find an image that people like, a style that people like. And we, we tend to beat that dead horse until the internet and Instagram is full of it. Um, but that's what photographers do, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I've I've definitely picked up stuff from these other guys. I feel like I was talking to someone earlier about this. Uh, the fact that we are all, I was with a bunch of musicians, the fact that we are all as musicians, you know, we may have our, our own style, but it is only because it's like, you know, for me, like, you know, 25% David Gilmore and 5% Mike Geinzinger and, you know, all these other guys that, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, Brian May, like the, you know, everyone together made the, the, essentially the library that I have to choose from and right. then it comes out through my fingers. And that's, you know, when we're teaching each other about photography and learning about photography together, you end up just being able to better hone your own vision for the shot and not someone else's vision. You're not trying to steal their photo well, or something. Well, and, and that's what a lot of guys forget is that most of us, after a while, understand that we don't just pick up the camera and take a photo and we're surprised by what comes out of it. We, we walk into it with a mental image of what we want may not be the same thing we get, but we, we walk in and have this mental <laughs> image of where we're going to go with it, and we shoot to produce that image, and then we edit from those shots to produce that same vision. And so, theoretically, <laughs> if you go in there desiring a different image at the beginning, the, out, the output shouldn't be anywhere near the same, because you've, you've taken individual decisions about how you compose the image, how you framed the image, how what you know ISO you used, all those things that are going to make the image just slightly different when you take it to post-processing, that then is going to be magnified in your post-processing. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll end up with something virtually different. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you what uh, goals you have to achieve with, uh, with 3G, and also if you have a, a unicorn that you want to shoot. <laughs> well, I can, I can answer the unicorn one first. I, okay. I don't have a unicorn aircraft, and, okay. and that, that may be a surprise to you, um, because I... For me, for my photography, and you may have seen it in, in how I've been shooting kind of in the last six months, um, I'm really trying to hone in on things I've seen before but not been able to duplicate. And I'll use the photo from El Centro that I just took out there uh, a week and a half ago that I've stood out there in the flight line a million times, never really thought about the mountains in the background. I've done photo calls out there, said, huh, oh, what do you know? There's a mountain in the background of this F-18 taking off. I've never sat there in my mind and said, all right, I want to stack the mountains. I want it to be sunset. I need aviation, not flying, but just taxiing around. And, and I kind of saw the image starting to happen as the C-17 was tacking, taxiing out. And I realized, holy crap, this is, this is the kind of thing that I've been trying to set up and trying to do and this C-17, if it taxis the right way, <laughs> will allow me to, to capture that image. And so, so those are my unicorns. And, and, that, and I put plural on that for, for a very good reason. There are a lot of things I've seen that I'm still striving to capture. Um, and I'll be honest, a lot of them come from history or come from my experience uh, as a marine aviator, that they're things that I, didn't, I never was able to capture in the moment of doing it. Um, but with a photo shoot, it's one of the things you got. I really want to capture some of the forward air control work. I want to capture some of the, just the dynamics of air combat 
in a, in a way that is different than what you normally see of static airplanes in formation flying around doing a tail chase um, because that isn't how it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so th- those are the, the unicorns that I chase now um, because, to be honest, I don't care if it's a pair of T-45s or two F-18s that are doing the air combat maneuvering. Uh, either one will make a cool image. Um, it's the capturing that image in that moment. Cool. That's yeah. I got a lot of images flying through my mind right now of what that could. Yeah, and, that, and that's the problem because that that could drive you well through your entire career basically. But it's it's you know yeah. I I I think that one of the benefits of having come from a marine aviation background is I saw some amazing things that at the time I didn't understand how amazing they were. They were commonplace to me, and then all of a sudden you know then when you become retired and you're not flying every day and you go wow that was really cool and i've never seen anyone document that um and so you suddenly realize there's a there's kind of a gap in people's understanding of aviation yeah, hindsight huh yeah exactly well exactly it's you know <laughs> it, it's one of those things sometimes the most mundane events are the coolest whether it's the sunrise over baghdad at high altitude you know with another f-18 um you know, finding a way to, to take the photo to, to show just how bad the sandstorms are as you're breaking out and landing in Kuwait. You know, things like that that are that are things you have you have seen in your mind's eye and you go, I know exactly what the moment was like. How the heck do I document that? You know? Yeah. You should have been a painter. Yeah. Well yeah, that would have been that's the easy way to cheat. <laughs> Unfortunately, if you've ever seen my painting skills, yeah, they're not very good. <laughs> painting, drawing, those are not my not my forte. Not at all. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take it back to the being a historian with a camera for, for so many years of my Marine Corps career. There's, there's so many moments as a forward air controller or when you're in Afghanistan, you're seeing the terrain um, that, that there you understand why people who traveled extensively in the ages before cameras painted so much and why, why there's so many mm. people with sketchbooks. And because and, there are these things you're like. No one is ever going to see this unless they're in this exact same moment. I need to find some small, paltry way to, to record it for posterity. And so that's why every expedition, every traveler had their little sketchbook and their notebook and, and did their best to, to record it. Man, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so I like photography, in case you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to making images, I like it. I I think we share that i mean it's it's a lifelong passion like you can continue improving until you die like yeah well absolutely it's to me it's one of those skills you know you're never going to be perfect at you're always going to be learning and there's always more challenges I, i every time i come across a photographer who is kind of thinks they've shot it all done it all whatever i go change genres do do something different you know there there you may have shot everything that you've ever wanted to shoot in collegiate sports but go try something different yeah i i think we're all on board with that just, you know i i hate the phrase out outside the box but you know just do something weird yeah get yeah get weird man yeah, well, but I you think know, we all have that uh, that itch by uh, January and February to go shoot jets. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem is you get the lull at the end of uh, air show season. You're like, yeah, I need to get back out there. Although, I'll be honest, it was a slow uh, fall for 3G, which was good because Tony and I got to actually take part in our real lives and, and do things like that rather than workshops. Um, but uh, I think all of us are going <laughs> to be itching by by the spring to get back out there. 
What's next with uh, 3G? What's going on with 3G? So we're trying to put the finishing touches on the 2020 schedule, and a lot of that will come out from the discussions at the International Council of Air Shows. So ICAST, obviously, all the air show performers, all the big demo teams are, are going to be there. And there's there's always a lot of discussion and negotiation about schedules and events people want to do. So that's kind of where we'll set in stone what we think we're going to do. We know we're going to go back to Arizona sometime in the spring. We're going to go back to Kissimmee, Florida again. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, aircraft people have been asking to fly with. You know, fly with Memphis Bell again. Fly with uh, Lee Lauderback and Stein 51 again. Um, so we know those things are on the list of we'd like to. Uh, it's just aligning their schedules, ours, a photo ship. Um, and then making sure we're not getting too much into the air-to-air photography because I think there's a misnomer. Joe Copelman and I talk about it a lot that that people think the holy grail is air-to-air and air-to-air is a heck of a lot of fun and you can make some amazing images air-to-air. You can also make some amazing images never leaving the ground and I think you guys have done that especially with uh, a lot of your night images that I'm thoroughly jealous of. Like (laughs) darn those full disc guys. They out, yeah. Those kids outsmarted me again. No, but uh, but seeing the stuff that you guys are doing, it to me, that really hammers home that there's technically difficult shoots to do that, that are demanding, that are fun, um, that you're never leaving the ground. And, and so we really want to make sure that we're not um, pushing too many of our photographers to think that, hey, you got to go to air to air to get these amazing shots. You know, try to consistently still have the night shoots like we've had out at El Centro uh, and a lot of the night shoots like we used to do down at Stein 51 where where you've got the run of the airfield and you can really set up some cool things yeah that's that is pretty cool yeah um when you try to set up a workshop at an air show during an air show what has been the biggest challenge as far as whether it's dealing with public affairs at a military base or the show organizer if it's just a private show What's the biggest challenge on your end? So military air shows are their own nightmare because of legalities and um, the military's perception that they're being fair to everybody. So there's always a a thousand layers of bureaucracy you have to go through on those. And invariably, it's the one you didn't think of briefing that is the one that makes your life difficult. So uh, (laughs) it's it's one of those things that you think you've dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and sure enough, um, someone from environmental calls up and says, hey, if you're going to be out there late, isn't that the same time that the protected turtle is or something like that? (laughs) And you go, oh, I didn't even think of that. So so I will will push military air shows out of of the way just because there's there's always a level of of frustration there. And then when you work with a civilian uh, air show or fly-in, really the toughest thing has been the personal schedules of the individuals involved. Because I think, as you've seen, that 90% of the aircraft owners and pilots are very supportive of photography and very supportive of photographers in general. It's The problem is so many photographers show up and want to make demands on people's schedule rather than showing up and going, hey, if this is not a good air show to do it, what is a good air show? You know, I'd like to do it tonight. Can't do it tonight. Can we do it at air show X? a month from now and do it on Saturday night there. And having that flexibility built into the way you ask people questions, because I've seen way too many of my peers show up at an air show expecting to be given some kind of access. 
rather than having to coordinate and talk and make sure that everybody's on the same sheet of music and that it fits everybody's personal schedule. Because you know what? Guess what? After an air show, a lot of guys like to go have a beer, and they really don't want to be there doing a night run. Um, so, so you really got to kind of get the buy-in and kind of say, all right, guys, do you want to do this? If you want to do it, I need you for 30 minutes after sunset on Friday. You know, and, and as I'm sure you guys have done, there's always a there's always a level of negotiation to get there. Always. Yeah, that's how we ended up with some of the night shoots this year. They didn't work earlier in the year, so we just talked to the people in charge and made it happen at a different show. Yeah, well, and just I think that's an important. Out. Yeah, it's an important lesson. So, so many photographers I talk to, they believe it's instant access. You immediately get the photos because the first time you asked to do it, and they don't understand that that could have been a year or maybe a year and a half even in trying to align schedules. And I was I was kind of chuckling listening uh, to episode three, just the discussion about just to get an air to air shoot done and trying to align the schedules uh, for that. People people think you just show up with a photo ship and you go, oh, I'll nah. do an air to air shoot. And it's not <laughs> that way. You know, you're trying to lay this stuff out six months in advance. Um, and and so that that I think is something that a lot of photographers don't always appreciate the the level of complexity. Uh, and, and to be quite frank, I'll. I'll blame you guys like some guys blame me. Y'all make it look too easy. <laughs> you, you guys go out there and go, oh, hey, look at our, uh, you know, Thunder Over Michigan photos. And you're like, yeah, I also know that it was like the sixth time they tried to do those shoots. So <laughs> thank God they finally got it, you know. But it's, yeah. it's it, you know, it's that's that's the, the thing that people don't appreciate about aviation photography is it absolutely is working the pavement. It is making phone calls. Uh, sometimes it's buying beers. Sometimes it's sitting there in the bar, even talking to that pilot who agreed and said, I want to do that, and catching him on Friday night, buying him a beer and saying, are we still on for Saturday? I'm going to ask yeah. you on Saturday morning, are we still on for Saturday? And at noon on Saturday, I'm going to ask you, are we still on for Saturday? <laughs> you know? So so it's it's a lot of that personal engagement. And, and I don't know what you guys have seen. So I'm going to get out over my skis a little bit when I say this, um, because I may be wrong. But... I think a lot of photographers either don't have the confidence or don't have the the interpersonal fortitude. It's not that they don't have interpersonal skills. They 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 just don't like getting told no. I, if people tell me no, that's fine. I'll go away. I'll come back in six months and say, "Do we want to try it again?" Um, so Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I, uh, I think that's where it gets. Wholeheartedly agree to that. Well, I mean, you guys tell me. So, so what would you say? was the shortest uh, you know, time between asking you to do a photo shoot, actually putting it together for one that wasn't just a, hey, can I step outside, take a photo of your airplane, and you push it back in the hangar, for an actually you know, smoke-on kind of shoot or night, night project. That was a New Garden night shoot, yep. probably. I was <laughs> I mean, definitely going to say that. Well, we went in there with a plan of, what, two planes, and we walked out with, what, five? Six. Six. Nice. Yeah, nice. There you go. Just because we saw uh, one of the pilots that works with Mark Murphy, and he knew what we did, and we're like, hey, you got a Zero and a Mustang here. You want to join us? And it yeah, worked and, out. And that's when it works out great. And that's, you know, part of that is also being a known quantity. And so I, I bring that up to a lot of photographers that your reputation is everything. If, if you can walk into a room and pilots don't run out of the way, <laughs> then, <laughs> then you're at least making progress. Because you go to ICAS and – there's there's two people that are the most reviled people at the International Council of Air Shows. Lawyers and photographers. <laughs> because because every photographer is there trying to strike a deal and trying to strike a deal for free and trying to fly with somebody. And so 
it's it's always that that problem if you have to be able to walk in there and say, hey, I'm here to do either photojournalism work. I'm here to do fine art work. I'm just here to shoot your airplane. I want to be part of the team um, and, and not walk in with baggage like you're owed something that I think a lot of photographers really, really carry that chip for some reason. And I don't, I don't understand why. I mean, I would, I would definitely agree with what you're saying, uh, Doug. Uh, so talk about like the shortest time frame uh, was at New Garden. The class of 45 shoot that we did at Thunder, I mean, you know that we were trying to get that set up at Beaufort. Uh, yeah. So that was about a six-month process in the making. Um, but a, kind of a unique thing there is that they, that Jim and Scooter both wanted to do it uh, because they had never done a night run-up at the same time with both aircraft. Right. So um, there's got to be, I think that there has to be something in it uh, as in some perspective uh, for the pilot or the owner of the aircraft. Well, well there does. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of photographers forget that because they, they think just the, they think an image is good enough. No, you need the image. You need the image that the pilot, that the aircraft owner wants. And, and I don't know how it was for you guys, but deciphering what they really wanted as the image, that probably was half of the fight anyway. Cause you're like, Oh, I know what my artistic vision is. And then, you know, Scooter or Jim go, no, what we want is this over here. You're like, huh, I don't know how I'm going to shoot that because that requires a really <laughs> wide lens, you know. <laughs> well, they, uh, so actually speaking on on that, they, he, Jim wanted to get the sunset going down between the two aircraft. Uh, but the way that we had it angled, it, we wouldn't have been able to get the shots that we had gotten if we tried right. to do, to match it up to have the sun go down between the two airplanes. Um, so what you're saying is I should approach Jim and go, hey, I'm going to get a shot between you and Scooter of the sun going down. It's a great idea, right? So, so we'll go for that? No, yeah, I'm kidding. We have to go after those FDA guys. Yeah, exactly. Screw those guys. One-uppers. Oh. <laughs> no, the, the Jim and Scooter were, were completely awesome about it. Um, yeah, they're yeah. awesome. They, they are great supporters of 3G. I, uh, I laugh because they never fail to say nice things about me to my face, which I'm not used to as a photographer. So... <laughs> I'm used to them saying "scram, get out of here," uh, <laughs> but uh, but they're they're both great guys, and hopefully we'll be working with them again um, this next year. I know it fell through; we didn't get to fly with them at, at Beaufort because of schedules. And quite frankly, after everything that had gone on with the Blue Angels and the Raptor, I I kind of looked at Tony and like, I'm glad I'm done. I'm glad I'm not flying another mission today. <laughs> I think I'm beat. So. Would you say that topped your your list this year, the Raptor? And the it, it did. So you know, Tony and I were sitting there at the bar afterwards, and uh, all the all the other photographers had finally you know called it a night and thrown in the towel. And I looked at Tony, and I'm just like, "Man, we're screwed." He goes, "What do you mean?" I'm like, "How are we going to top that?" I'm like, we, <laughs> "We have peaked. We might as well just fold up 3G and quit at this point." <laughs> like we we can't even equal that, much less top it. I'm like, ah, what do we do now? You know. <laughs> so there, there was a, a point of, of much uh, humor between Tony and myself. And, and to be honest, maybe that's the reason that we really ended up taking the fall off was that we just were like, we've got to figure out, one, what 3G really is about. You know, wh who is our target audience for photographers? And two, make sure we don't get in a game of one-upsmanship where we really keep trying to set the bar higher and higher in an unsafe way rather than saying, okay, wh what is a smart thing to do for a photo shoot uh, with high-performance aircraft? So Doug, let me let me ask you. Um, you know, we're we're still fairly young on the uh, 
photography circuit. Um, we'll, we'll be going into our what third year here, guys? Right next year. Uh, I think that's correct. Yeah. For real. So so Doug, how, you know, moving forward, how can uh, <laughs> how can guys like uh, you know our groups like you know Full Disc, you know, work closely with 3G and and you know work together. Well, you know the the thing that we enjoy doing is we enjoy going in and not as I call it, we don't want to ruin somebody's good deal, but we want to help people enhance it. So kind of like, you know, if there's opportunities that photographers have, they say, Hey, I know this pilot, this guy that wants to fly, he wants to do an air to air. Um, but you know, maybe I've only shot him out of a bonanza. So I've only had side on shots or haven't really gotten forward quarter stuff. Um, there's times that we'll say, Hey, let's put two or three of those guys together. We'll bring a, a sky van or a Casa in. Um, but part of the, the problem with any time we partner like that, and it's kind of like the discussion I had with you guys, is you always have to be careful who's on the ramp with you. You know, and you really have to curate who your photography buddies are because uh, when you start opening up personal relationships that you've built with aviators and with demo teams and stuff like that, all of a sudden the third guy over on the ramp throws his photos out there before you do, and now you look like an idiot. Um, so we always try to make sure when we, we show up and, and work with uh, groups like Full Disc and, and you guys that we, that we don't ruin anyone's good deal, that, that we don't go in there and we definitely don't want to um, mess up any of the relationships. But more importantly, we don't want to, in the process of building a workshop and ostensibly helping other photographers, you know, take away an opportunity that you had exclusively to yourself. So I think a lot of the things that we do is we say, we tell um, other aviation photographers, you know, hey, find that, that flight facility, find that aircraft owner, find somebody who wants to do something either ground or air-to-air based, and and you just don't know where to start in the discussion. And we'll come in and we'll have the discussion, you know, and we'll we'll talk to them, see if they're amenable to it, um, and then uh, then people get an opportunity that they might not have had otherwise. That's cool. But, you know, I I think the big thing is so many, so many photographers and and generally this applies more to individual photographers than to you guys as as a group. Um, So many times they just don't uh, don't have the opportunities to to push themselves. They kind of go and do the same things. They kind of go to the same air shows. They you see the same acts. They shoot the same photos and and their portfolio throughout an air show season really looks the same. Uh, I think the thing that we enjoy doing is going to an event, and, and we'll probably do it at Sun and Fun again this year, uh, where we can go in and give a very basic intro to aviation photography class. But it's it's more fun to just stand out on the ramp and just stand out there during the air show and just talk to people who may or may not have sat through the class, you know, and, and figure out what they're doing. And, and everybody's throwing pointers around, and, and we're all kind of learning and shooting. And then generally something that none of us expected happens shows up or you you get a different camera angle and you all go oh wow this is this is actually something where we're we're getting better we're getting a shot that i might have missed because i am not normally surrounded by three or four other uh, aviation photographers pointing out the shots to me cool that's awesome um i guess uh should kind of hit on what's going on at uh full disc here coming up um we've got a uh an air-to-air from the Military Aviation Museum on the way from uh, Nate Gingles. We got a St. Louis gallery from the same dude. Uh, still got the Dover Gallery, uh, Golden Age, New York Air Show, and the Reds. And I have in parentheses here, here uh, 
apologize for the delay in releasing stories and explain how we all have full-time <laughs> jobs. Um, uh, yes. Oh, come on. Excuses, excuses. Oh, wait. <laughs> I, I have a full-time job, too. <laughs> darn it. Yeah. I, we haven't found that golden pot yet to release yeah, exactly. from our full-time <laughs> Keep jobs. Keep looking. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going for that. I have pictures of uh, Andrew McKenna and his Mustang climbing through a rainbow, but at the end of the rainbow, I didn't I didn't see the, the code, the cheat code. Yeah, exactly. It's not there. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> uh, it's just some trees and, like, some equipment. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to figure that one out, but... Um, uh shout outs do we have any uh shout outs right guy you got any shout outs no no not not right now man rock on uh james you got anybody uh i'd like to shout out all the uh significant others for all the full disc guys the wives girlfriends uh putting up all the av geekery that we do um takes a decent chunk of our free time i know so shout out to all the ladies Mine did say she goes. We should have a podcast with you guys and just the girls. My wife said the same thing. And my girl wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> hey, I, I got to tell you from from I'm the kidding. other podcast circles I run in, it's hilarious that the comment is like, "Hey guys, can you bring your wives back on? Because they were a lot funnier than you were." You know, so, <laughs> so you know, I hear I hear that a couple times. I'm like, "All right, I see how this is going." <laughs> if I let my girlfriend take the mic, she'll never give it back. It'll be I, over. I think that'd be the same. <laughs> just set up one night all the girls just talk and we just go take pictures of a plane somewhere you know we could probably work that out i'm sure we could probably figure that out <laughs> the alarm's going off at 2 30 in the morning and the half asleep kiss goodbyes yeah. <laughs> um i'd like to shout out nick moore for his good job hosting and working this podcast into reality um and I, in a cheesy moment, I'd also like to shout out you, the listener, for all the awesome feedback we've gotten recently. Um, the volume of support has been tremendous. We're kind of super stoked about this. But um, you want to tell the listeners where they can find your work, James? Uh, yeah, Instagram, Black Knight Aviation, and on our full disc website. And you, Rye Guy? Hey, on uh, Instagram, you can find me at Rye Guy Aviation. Uh, same thing on Facebook, and you can also see my work on the Full Disc website. And Doug, where can people, I guess, find 3G and then also your own personal uh, stuff? Absolutely. So 3G Aviation Media, we actually shortened it, so 3GAVM.com. You can go find out our workshop schedule, see a lot of the photos that Tony and I and some of the other photographers have taken. And then if you want to look at my personal stuff, go to Instagram, fox 3 Photo is out there and then fox3photo.com is the personal website for those of you that still use the web the web that ancient thing <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure everyone's connected yeah somehow <laughs> well i am nick pascarella at nick's glass eye on instagram and we have hit bingo that was fun doug thank you for coming on today i really enjoyed that i really appreciate it guys that was awesome it was good stuff doug thank you yeah. absolutely Hell yeah. Well, that just uh, about does it for episode four. We'd like to thank Rye Guy James and our special guest, Doug Glover, for joining us today. This is Scotch Nick signing off. I'd like to thank you for listening to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. 
Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 160th.